Welcome, welcome, welcome everybody to the Hockey Think Tank podcast brought to you by the HockeyThinkTank.com, a website for all players, parents, and coaches to go to get a little bit of education and a little bit of inspiration regarding the greatest game on the planet. What an episode we have for you guys here today and what a year of 2019 it has been been and we owe a huge debt of gratitude to everybody out there that has listened and supported our podcast uh this thing this thing keeps growing and growing and growing and uh we have all of you to thank for that so for the last podcast of the year uh we wanted to get your input and we wanted to hear what kind of questions you guys had uh that we can answer on the podcast and we actually have a, a guest host here as well today so we have my dad, Bob Scott, all the way from the beautiful city of Chicago, uh, here for this mailbag episode as well. He's been involved in youth hockey for, uh, what, over 70 years now, I, I want to say. Um, but uh, great, great man and great hockey coach. So, uh, Dad, before we do get over to Jeff, the talent, let's bring on the, the other talent. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. I'm uh... Happy to be here in skinny Atlas, New York, visiting uh, my two granddaughters. Yeah, we don't really matter anymore, do we? Uh, nope. <laughs> Boom roasted. Boom roasted. Um, now the talent. What's going on, Jeffrey Lavicio? Not much, brother. Just got back from a sick pump sesh in the gym. In the gym. Uh, and uh, yeah, feeling good. Ready for this one. Uh, I, lo- I love these mailbags. I love getting to answer people's questions and try and help them. And, and I love hearing your answers. And now we got your dad here too, who's been in hockey longer than us. So it'll be cool to kind of hear everyone's answers and we'll all learn something. So I love these ones. <laughs> Do you love these ones? You, I couldn't tell from. Well, my last name is Love Vecchio. So I'm just <laughs> a lover by nature. What can I say? Are you a lover, not a fighter? Oh yeah. I'm not good at fighting. I was either really good at fighting or really bad because I had to be so mad to like snap but like it was really hard for me to snap i think i'm like too nice naturally and so like for me to snap it had to be like a teammate had to get murdered right in front of me or somebody had to hit me in the head and i would lose it other than that like i was never mad enough to be good at fighting but like the good fighters like our buddy matt claxon my roommate in college and he like led the ahl one year in fighting he was never mad when he fought that's why he was so good because he was just like thinking where should i move my hands where should i grab all that stuff so i don't know how are your two fights in your life? <laughs> uh, four, Jeffrey. Oh, four. four. Damn. I'm pretty sure I'm 0 for 4. <laughs> Actually, it might have been like 0, 2, and 2 kind of thing. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, not not great, but you got, you got to show up, right? You just got to show up. I respect it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's get to it. What do you think? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So I got a first question here. And uh, is this a question I've heard before, and, and I really like it. It's about transitioning outside of hockey uh, once you're done playing. It's from Amy Greenholtz, and uh, she said, it might be interesting to hear about players transition out of hockey at any level, after youth, juniors, college, and or pro. Um, then she goes on and, and uh, you know, talks about a bunch of different stuff. But, uh, you know, how does a player know when it's over and gain peace with it? Uh, how do players come to grip with it? What helps them move on to their next phase? Uh, I'd be interested in hearing more about this and what players do when they transition outside of playing hockey. Um, so let's let's leave it to you here first, Jeffrey. I want to hear what you have to say first, because I feel like we talk about me transitioning a lot into the gym already. So I want to hear yours first. <laughs> yours is more more interesting than mine. You coach Division One, like 
Well, so here's the thing. So I, I feel like I've had, I've had two transitions outside of hockey. So the first one was as a player and the second one was as a coach and coaching at Cornell. Um, and I think the biggest difference between the two uh, was the first one, I had something to fall back on right afterwards. So I knew I was going to Miami of Ohio to be a graduate assistant coach the next year. Um, so that was actually a very easy transition for me because I had a plan B to go to. Uh, when I left Cornell, I didn't have a plan B. I just stepped away and, and left and wasn't really sure what I had going next. And that was a lot harder. And I've talked to a lot of players that feel the same way. Like when you know what you're going to get into, then, and we've talked about this on the podcast before we had Duncan Fletcher, who does a lot of things with the NHLPA. And he was talking about how he thinks it's actually really good for players to like get internships during the summers and for players to have other interests outside of hockey so that when they do leave the game, they have something to fall back on and they know what they want to do. Um, so for me in my experiences, in my experience in having the two of them, um, the fact that I, I had something to fall on after the first one made it an easy transition. And when I left coaching, it was a lot harder because I didn't, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but now I'm here with you. We got the hockey think tank. So I was good in the world again. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, I would, yeah, that just makes sense. Like I remember, uh, for me it was a little different because I had concussion problems. So I knew like any, any next concussion, my career could be over in an instant. So like once I went through that, I was kind of like, well, I need to start preparing in case the worst ever happens in the season. So I started my, my company while I was playing. I mean, if you're playing pro, you only work out during the day, hopefully if you're in a higher league making decent money. So like, what else do you have to do? It's like two hours out of your day, right? You might need to take a nap for recovery. It's like three or four hours out of your whole day. You have eight hours. You're going to be awake at least the rest of the day. So like find something you're interested in. And like you said, like go get an internship or go volunteer or go ask to shadow somebody. I tell people all the time, like, Hey, if you ever want to shadow me and watch what I do, like, just ask me and I'll let you watch anytime. Not saying what I do is right or wrong, but you can at least see what's happening. Yeah. So I think, I think the, the earlier you do it in your career, the better and, and develop your skills and what you like and what you don't like for when you do have to transition, it'll be quicker. Yeah, for sure. And I think the other thing too, that I've learned is as an athlete, we're kind of like a slave to our routine. And having a routine just, it almost gives us some like serenity and some clarity throughout the day. And, uh, you know, when you, when you don't have that, that can be tough because you're almost searching for things to do and, and searching for a little bit of structure in your day, which helps you to accomplish certain things. And uh, that's something that I kind of learned the hard way once I was done with coaching, because it, when I was coaching, I mean, you're so busy all the time and there's never a moment during the day um, when you got to kind of figure it out. But um, now doing this, I've learned to put some more structure in my day and try to develop a little bit of a routine. And that has severely helped, um, for not just my productivity, but also like my, my health and well being as well. Yeah. I mean, we're, if you're playing juniors and above your, your daily routine, your daily, like agenda is so set in stone every single day. And it's, decided by someone else. I mean, it's basically a job, but you just go and do different things you have to do. And yeah, you're right. Like when you get out of that routine, after you've been in it for years and years, sticking to it very strictly, it is definitely like kind of a shock to like, Oh God, like, what do I do? So again, like just prepare yourself, 
so that whenever it happens, like you, you have somewhere you're going to go, or you at least have connections that you've built throughout your career. Yeah. What do you think, Dad? Um, well, for me personally, I was cut my second year or after my second year at uh, UIC. So it happened kind of abruptly. Um, it was a little emotional um, because I knew I wasn't going to play again. Um, but I did have, I went right into a job right after that. And right after that, we had TOEF. So I was a pretty busy man after that. And after a little, uh, you know, soul searching, um, got back into coaching and, uh, you know, moved forward from there. But I think that trying to, you know, athletes today and the level that you guys played at, um, it's a little bit different because you're, you, know, you guys are doing it for a much longer period of time. And you guys were also way older than I was when I stopped playing. So um, I, I think that technology and everything else and people talking about mental health and things like that, that people are, are more prepared um, for that transition into real life. I think you need to join a group or something too. Like that's something that I've noticed is um, like, luckily for me last year, I started coaching and I had a group, I had a team of 18 year olds and I was an assistant coach and I was like part of that team. So I still had like the boys. And I think that's what most athletes, whether they're hockey or not, but hockey, especially because we're very tightly bonded throughout the season. Like you need somewhere to go and like have another group or family that you go to a couple times a week or once a day even or whatever for me that was coaching last year and then luckily I work with teams so I kind of still had that if I didn't have that I think I would have I'd have been pretty messed up I think that first year like with just like not having an outlet like where you're around you know like another family yeah I I totally agree man like I'm I'm struggling with that this year this is the first year I haven't been a part of a team since I was like what five years old. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I, I a hundred percent agree with that. And, uh, I am going to be jumping back into coaching next year. A hundred percent. I actually have some things on the go right now. Not ready to announce anything, but, uh, I got some cool things on the go for that. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's what hockey players miss is, is that kind of thing. And whether it's joining a men's league team or women's league team, whether it's coaching, whether it's, you know, it doesn't even have to be in hockey. It could be some kind of social group outside of hockey as well that has a little bit of structure, but also to have competitiveness too. I think that like as hockey players, that's what we, that's our badge of honor. And so if we can find a way to have a group and compete together and uh, you know, even if it's fun, I think that's something that is very important. Totally agree. All right. Next question. Yeah. Your turn. Here we go. Uh, this one's from Instagram, Kyle Jones. He said, how do you respond to a toxic locker room as a coach? That's great. D- Dad, what do you got? Well, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I tell the parents of the coaches, I'm sorry, I tell the parents of the teams that I coach, um, the most important place um, is the locker room. And that, you know, we want to make sure we have a great environment. Um, and we've had locker rooms on, you know, obviously I'm coaching youth hockey. Um, this year I'm coaching a mite and a squirt team, but I've coached peewee teams and Bantam teams. And so being around the locker room and making sure that you have good leadership, um, in there really helps. But when it is toxic, I think that it's really the job of the coach and the assistant coach to pay more attention and to educate, um, the players who you think are the suspects of making it toxic and trying to get them to understand, um, you know, that we're all in here together. 
Um, I always use the foxhole as a uh, as a learning lesson for my teams, uh, to, and say, you know, who do you want in that foxhole with you? Who do you want that's going to be have your back? And I think that that's important um, as a coach to really be aware of that because the locker room can kill you um, if you don't, especially as you get older. You know, you guys can speak to the you know what you would do if you had like a junior team or a college team and it was toxic. But I, I still go back um, to the coach having the right message and being in tune with what is happening in that locker room and trusting the leadership that that is chosen um, that they're going to be able to talk with you openly and know that you're going to help out if they're having problems. Yeah. What do you think, Vex? Um, I'd say it's more like you got to get it before it gets bad. I mean, if that's possible, like, first of all, you've got to set the culture, um, depending on, I mean, it depends on if a locker room he's talking about is toxic. I'm guessing it's like above 13 years and older, you know, below that kids probably are just in there just laughing, giggling. They're not hitting. No, Uncle Bob's saying no. All right, maybe maybe I'm, I have a squirt team this year, um, that I had to do some pretty heavy lifting at the beginning of the year because, there were some kids who thought that what we were trying to do wasn't something that they were going to listen to. Um, and my, one of the things that I do is that um, I, <laughs> I kind of sneak around a little bit with the locker room and stand, you know, outside and listen. And the kids know that my rule is, is if you, if I come in and they're screaming and yelling and they're doing things that they shouldn't be doing in there, they may get kicked out of the locker room for a week. And they're like, well, where do we get dressed? And I'm like, you know, that's, you're, you're going to have to figure that out. If it happens, go get dressed in the lobby, go get dressed in the bathroom, but we're not going to have um, that kind of environment where, where kids are screaming and yelling and saying inappropriate things. And even, even with the music, with the younger kids, you know, they want to play all the crazy, you know, explicit <laughs> words in the songs. Um, and it's just not something that is, is that we allow anyway for them to do. Yeah. Well, so then I guess any, any locker room, I guess you right off the bat, talk about leadership and how, you know, leadership is how it's established and try and create a culture that way. And then bring in who you think are the leaders on the team, you know, ethics and morality and everything you are looking for in a leader wise and talk to them about, all right, how do we always make it cool to like do the right thing? Because I think that's the big thing. Like a lot of people think it's not cool to work harder. It's not cool if you're beating people because you're working harder than them, but they're more skilled than you. So it's all about setting up the culture. But let's say you do lose it. I mean, I think then it kind of goes to like, I'm going to treat you all the exact same way. Like if not, everyone's not pulling the rope together and we're moving the, the, in the correct direction, you're all going to be punished. And I need you guys to come together. I think that's the only way I would be able to do it. I, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I think, I think the most important thing is that the coach models the behavior. So if the coach is screaming and yelling and the coach is demeaning people and stuff like that, then what do you think the kids are going to do? Right. That's, that's number one. The coach has to understand that his or her, actions and words are going to be reflected by the actions and words of the the kids that they're coaching. Um, for me, I like when I read this question or when you said the question, I immediately thought of bullying, um, bullying in a locker room because that's the, the biggest thing, especially at the youth hockey. I mean, it happens at the older levels too, but, um, especially at the youth hockey levels and with every team that I have, 
I have a rule. There's a zero tolerance bullying policy. If you bully a kid on your team, you're, I don't, you're going to get kicked off. Like you're done. There's zero tolerance for it because I've seen it. We've seen it um, with, uh, with my brothers, you know, and they have special needs, but they played hockey and they were bullied and it was a tough time and really affected them. And, um, you know, zero, zero tolerance. And you got to tell the parents that I have zero tolerance for bullying. And if you're going to do it, you're going to get kicked off the team. I'm sorry. No, no, like it's maybe that's harsh, but there's no room for that in youth sports. I agree to that too. Like that. So, uh, but yeah, I think at the older levels, you just got to be really careful with the toxic locker room. It, It happens before the locker room becomes toxic. You have to get the right people in the locker room to, to be able to do that. You have to have strong leaders that can police it when you're not around because a toxic locker room doesn't happen in the locker room at the older levels. A toxic locker room happens away from the rink with the conversations that you have with teammates and putting people down and I should be doing this and this person should be doing that. And I should be getting more ice time and yada, yada, yada. And typically it's only one or two people that makes the locker room toxic too. So just being on the lookout for that person, I think it's all encompassing at the older levels. So really making sure that bullying is is something that is not tolerated at the younger levels and making sure when you're recruiting and scouting at the older levels that you're bringing in the right people, I think it goes to preventing a toxic locker room. And that's amazing. Yeah. Your leaders, you have to think about who your leaders are like so intently because if you're just looking at points or, you know, something, Oh, he's the leading goal scorer. It doesn't mean he's a leader that should be leading the locker room. Like he's a leader in scoring on the ice and stuff like that, but that doesn't mean he's the character you want that, that is steering the ship. So just, I, I know a lot of people kind of confuse those two sometimes when they don't know hockey and your leaders, you know, generally they're going to be like your, your heart and soul guys, your grinders, your Colin Frazier, like we had uh, on the podcast a few months ago. It was a great episode. If anybody hasn't heard that one, three times Stanley Cup champion. And it was really cool to hear his thoughts on this. We talked about it in that episode. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, all right, moving on. Yep. Okay. Uh, this one, I like this one. It's from Lisa Ford. How do you relay the message of no shifts off in a game? Love your podcast. Love you too, Lisa. Thank you. <laughs> so no shifts off. How do you relay that message? I think that that's a cult. It's almost like right back to what we we're just talking about. It's a culture thing. You got to make working hard. Cool. Especially at the younger ages. Like whenever I'm co- whenever I was, I started coaching like while I was playing a, a select summer team or something for a couple of weeks. And like, I would, I purposely, praise the kid working the hardest all the time like a lot so then the other kids see that and then they want to okay well I want to be praised too so then like they'd work harder they would do what I was praising of the kid who was the hardest worker and then everybody and then it kind of becomes like the cool thing and everybody wants to be praised for working hard like it seems so simple to me but I don't know why it always works especially with kids like you make them feel better and you're you're um causing them to want to repeat behaviors that are positive behaviors. And just, so you reward them with saying like, good job. Then they're happy. Then they want to do it again. It seems very simple to me, but um, <laughs> I don't know. I guess it, a lot of people don't see that. I, I don't know. What do you think? Um, well, we have a, a black hat with gold rhinestones on them. And that's our hardest worker at practice. So we're kind of trying to get the, you know, the culture and the idea of, 
of working hard. Um, and I think that the kids have fun with that. Uh, they're, they're looking to see who's, you know, they, the guy who has it today is the guy who gives it away the next day. And, and they, they do that all on their own. We don't, the coaches don't have anything to do with that because they go do that in the locker room afterwards. So, you know, if, if you kind of have that as your, as your base, and then, you know, when you're working with kids and, and again, I'm, I'm on the younger end of the kids, but, you know, try and encourage them, you know, if they have a bad shift or they come off and they're upset or something, you know, to just let them know, Hey, it's okay. Let's work harder the next shift. Let's work harder the next shift. And I think that that goes uh, a long way um, for the kids understanding that, you know, you're not, you're not going to, you know, yell and scream and get all over them, you know, because they're not working hard. They, they know, you know, all you have to do is kind of give a little acknowledgement and, you know, see a little head shake and go, okay, let's do better the next one. I love that. So most teams hand out the hard hat or the hat that you guys have after games, but you guys do it in practice. We, well, we that's, do, that's unreal. We do. I do, do like that. That's we, so good. We do the game also. Like we have the MVP but, of the but game. Still, but still like, yeah, that's legit. I like that. That's really I like good. That. That, that was one of my, one of the things that I had down was doing it and like making sure, cause you can't just turn it on and off. So if you expect no shifts off in, in a game, you have to kind of have that mentality in practice. And that's a great right. way to reinforce that. Holy crap. That's really cool. The other thing I have too, is like, um, John Wooden said it best. My best friend is the bench. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're not working hard, then you're going to come and hang out with my best friend, uh, the bench for, for a little bit, but there is a, but to that. And as Jeff, you say, it's a big Kim Kardashian sized butt. (laughs) If you're going to do that, you do that for everybody. You have to have the same standard for work ethic for every single kid on your team from the most talented to the least talented, because you see it all the time where coaches let things slip with some of the better players. And that does two things. Number one, it enables those players to, um, not have to work hard even more because they're getting away with it, which if they want to aspire to play at higher levels, they're not going to be able to get away with that. And you're not doing any good for their development. And the other thing is you talk about toxic locker room, like that creates a toxic locker room because now a kid that's working his butt off nine out of 10 shifts, but then he doesn't work hard for one shift and he gets sat when the better player on the team he's working hard for one out of 10 shifts, but he doesn't get sat because he's more talented. Like, what are you going to think is the the less talented player? And like, you're not going to want to play for that coach at all. So, and you're probably going to resent the the kid that doesn't work hard too. So that just causes a lot more problems. So I think you have to be consistent with it. And uh, I'm actually reading a John Wooden book right now. Um, It's written by actually Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. So he wrote a book about his relationship with Wooden and it's, unbelievable if anybody is looking for a book recommendation i I don't know what the name of the book is off the top of my head but um fantastic book and john wooden i've I've read a ton of his stuff and he always says like yep best friend is my bench so if anybody's not gonna buy in or do that then well you're not gonna put the only thing you can control is somebody's ice time as a coach so i think i think to add on to that about using the bench too and again like i just notice what I feel works better. I feel I've always felt, and I notice it with results that I've personally gotten that most of the time, positive feedback, even if you're correcting someone in a positive, more like you deliver it in a more positive way, they respond better to it. And 
like, I think, oh, okay, well, are you making people soft? Well, you're still holding them accountable, but instead of being like, get your ass on the bench, you're sitting for the rest of the period. Like, be like, Hey, I need more out of you. I expect more out of you. I know that you can play a lot better than you are right now. So I'm going to sit you for a couple shifts. And when you come back, I need the real you. You say something like that and you believe it about the kid because they're not playing to their potential. They'll respond in a way better way. And they're going to go out there and still like try things rather than if you like yell at them, then they're going to be nervous out there when they do get back out there. Anyways, they might make mistakes. I don't know. That's what I think about like correcting that and using the, the bench as your friend totally. personally. Yeah, absolutely. And you have to have expectations that the kids know. Um, and you have to be consistent with it. Like if they don't, if the kids don't know what to expect, like if they're not sure what working hard means and they might think they're working hard, but the coach does it like, so those expectations are huge as well, which like you said, and, um, the consistency factor, but I love, I love what you said there with, um, you know, wrapping it in uh Hey, I know there's, you got more in you. Like, because that's usually, it's usually why you're being sat. You're not playing to your potential because you're not working hard. You're not thinking, whatever. So, like, tell him why and that you know he has better. And then he'll be like, you know what? He, like, he believes in me. He, he's not just – he doesn't – it's not because he doesn't like me. You know, and people's minds go in different places when they get sat or something. And that reminds me of, like, junior hockey. My first year when I was on the fourth line and I was coming to every single game not knowing if I was in the lineup or not like me as a person who likes to like control my own destiny, that was super hard for me. And yeah, I was being a little baby about it, but I was always nervous, always sweating, coming to the rink. Am I playing? Am I not? This is embarrassing if I'm not playing. You know what I mean? Like if I would rather have, if I'm sitting like the coach texting me, calling me or, or telling me, even if it's before the game, be like, we'll tell you before the game. But instead of me just seeing my number on scratches, him to just look me in the eye and be like, this is why you're not playing. You're not working hard enough or you're not strong enough or you're not good enough or you're not good enough on the wall. Tell me what it is. Now I can like focus on that every single day instead of me coming to the rink, shitting my pants and nervous and not thinking about like the game all day long and just thinking about, Oh my God, am I going to play or not? Yeah. I mean, I just think that that make that's like better coaching takes more effort, but then you're going to get more out of your players because they're going to know what they need to be working on to get into the lineup. Yeah. Constant, constant feedback is, I mean, kids want that. Yep. They want the constant feedback. It's a necessity, especially in today's day and age where they're getting constant feedback um, all the time around them with their phones and social media and all that kind of stuff. If you can provide them with honest, um, clear, consistent feedback, I think kids really feed off that. I agree. All right, man. What's your next question? I have one that actually I already had answered. Uh, by one of my clients in Toronto Maple Leafs, uh, current uh, AHL goaltender, Joseph Wall. So uh, this came from David Lucy, uh, listens to all our podcasts and know it. We love you, Dave. Thank you. Um, on Twitter, he said, other than the D Starman hockey episode, you don't talk about goaltending much, but asking your opinions anyway, what age is appropriate to start playing goalie exclusively? When did Brick Wall, who is Joseph Wall, become a full-time goalie? Um, so I messaged Joseph and I said, Hey, uh, asked him, read him that text. And I said, like, what do you think? When should goalies start being goalies? Yada, yada, yada. Um, he said, I'm not sure if I have a specific age that's perfect for everyone, but I think it's very important to start off as a player to make sure you know how to skate. I wouldn't just hop right in as a goalie. You won't ever really develop those skating skills. 
all the best goalies are elite skaters. At the same time, though, if the kid is dying to play goalie, don't force him into another position. I played goalie off and on growing up, subbing in occasionally. I think my first or second year squirt, I became a goalie for good. When I was growing up, we didn't have as many resources focusing on vision training, but I think that's a very important aspect of the game. And if you can do things to sharpen your eyesight and reaction speed at a young age, I think that's great. Other than that, focus on developing a base of good technique. Make sure to do off-ice training to better your athleticism. I didn't even pay him to say that. Uh, Work on flexibility and never let someone change your style. Everyone's different how they play the position, so don't ever let someone tell you your style is wrong. So that was from Joseph Wall, plays an AHL for the Toronto Marlies. The future in that for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Yeah, he's nasty, man. Nasty human, nasty hockey player, nasty in the gym, nasty at life. Great human. Yeah. Yeah. Anything yeah. to add on that? I mean, that pretty much. <laughs> even He's a smart kid. He wrote me an essay there. Yeah. I was going to say that was legit. Yeah. <laughs> That's what he said. <laughs> so asked and answered so thanks for the question david and uh thanks for the answer joseph yes sir okay um next question uh this one is from chris in it looks like chicago i don't know what his last name is but this was from twitter he says how can usa hockey help coaches work with and better understand players that have behavioral or developmental problems my son has add adhd and is also on the spectrum if my wife and i weren't his coaches. I hate to see how he'd be treated by this coach uh, that doesn't understand. Wow. I'm going to go to dad. I'm going to go to you with this one because you have much more experience in this than, than we would. Yeah. And, and I think that that's a, that's a great question. Um, I think that because our family has dealt with that, it's pretty, uh, it's a pretty emotional situation. I know early on with uh, Max and Jake, when we kind of understood, um, you know, the hand that they were dealt, that it completely changed a bunch of things that I do as far as a coach. I literally say in the parent meeting at the beginning of the year, please tell me anything you can about your kids so I can be a better coach. So it's one of those things that I know a little, little break there, sorry, but it's one of those things I think it's important for every coach to, you know, kind of look at it that way. And sometimes we're given a gift of, of a window opening by certain things that happen, you know, in your life. And when that happens, you go, wow, you know, I could have, you know, I was coaching for probably 10, 15 years before I opened that door or opened that window and said, Hey, I should have been doing this all along. And, and if coaches are, are made aware of it, um, yeah, probably through USA Hockey, that would, that would be some of their education to say, hey, get to these parents, talk to them about, you know, their kids, let them know that it's okay to have discussions with you um, ab- about certain ways that they learn. Because not only do certain kids have, you know, special needs, ADHD, things like that, sometimes they just learn differently. You know, I was a visual learner when I was younger. Um, you know, hearing somebody tell me what the drill was, especially when they got complicated, I have, I had to stand back in line three or four people so that I could do the drill right. But if the coach actually went out there and did the drill, I had it no problem. So I, I think that's a great question. I think the easiest way, like, so I was 
thinking of it on a, how could you implement it so that people could have access to it right away? Um, like maybe the easiest way would be for USA hockey to pay a, a psychologist or a behavioralist or something to do an online course and then make that available through your USA hockey membership. Um, maybe each club can mandate the coaches. You have to watch this, you know, thing that'll teach you about the different, um, things and how to treat them or something. And then, um, if you want more resources, information, you know, in your state, contact these people, um, something like that. And the, you know, the parents would just have to, or, or if the club didn't want to mandate the coaches watch that, then maybe when the kids sign up, the parents will say, Hey, you know, he has ADHD or whatever. And then the coach can go to the USA hockey website, pull down a drop down video and watch something and learn a little bit about that. I, just like from a, how to, push that right away to coaches. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think the word empathy is, is a big mm. word um, because you never really know what other people are going through. And I think conventional wisdom, like in the past has when a kid is messing up drills or a kid is not doing the things that you're asking them to do, you just kind of think they're dumb or um, I don't need that. That's probably what, coaches would think is that they're just not bright kids um, when they might, you know, they might have a, an issue. They might have a disability. They might have a um, psychological problem or something like that. And I think having that in our family with, with Max and Jake has really caused us and probably you too, Jeff, and having uh, interacted with them to have a lot more empathy. hundred um, percent. And it's funny, like I was going to pick you guys up from the airport earlier today and you drive by this, uh, um, this bridge and there's a bunch of homeless people that are sitting under the bridge. And I, like, I think about like Max and Jake and that's probably where they would be if they didn't have the support system that they have and support and empathy for kids that have behavioral issues or disabilities is I mean I can't even state enough how how important it is. You look at the statistics of people who are in prison um, and the amount that have behavioral and mental disabilities. You look at the statistics when it comes to homelessness and the amount of people that have disabilities. Um, and it's not merely disabilities that you can see on the surface, right? You know, like if you talk to these people for just a conversation or something, you might not even notice, or you might not even know, but that's why getting to know kids and getting to know the parents and asking the parents for their input, I think is, is so incredibly and unbelievably important because then you, you know, and you know that you need to treat them a little bit differently and you know that you need to do things a little bit differently with them and like come down on other kids when they treat them poorly. Um, or bully them or whatever it may be. Um, I just, and I think there's so many kids out there that have undiagnosed disabilities and, and have issues. And so as a coach, you really have to be aware of that. And, you know, we've, I think we can talk pretty, pretty eloquently about it because this is something that we've experienced. Yeah. Um, but it's just, uh, it's uh, empathy and, and support, I think for, for kids like that, um, yeah, I mean, hell, whether you have a disability or you don't, empathy and support, I think, can can do wonders for for kids as a coach. And I also think that allowing the parents uh, that avenue to be able to discuss it with the coach, um, you know, again, it, it's only going to help you help them. And that's and that's what's most important. And I think that goes for any kid. Yeah. 
disability or not. But Correct. We, we tell, we know more about, and we've said this on the podcast. I've said this on the podcast. We know more about hockey than the parents do, but the parents know a hell of a lot more about the kid than we do. <laughs> so Absolutely. shutting the parents out and saying, I don't want your input, I think is, is wrong, which is, that's been conventional wisdom forever. It still is. Right. Um, but I think it's uh it's a way to kind of get to know the kids a little bit better and be able to coach them. It's an individual. You got to coach individuals, not just the team. Totally agree with all that. And I, I say that all the time. So um, I agree with you, Topher. <laughs> hey, by the way, I knew we were going to, like, he was close. Dad was close to crying. Like, I think he was almost <laughs> there and we can't get through an entire hour of talking without my father, Bob Scott crying. So and he's <laughs> probably laughing right now and knows how true that is, but um, let's move on. You're up. Let's get to a fun one. Cause we know who this is from. Uh, this is, a uh, recent podcast podcast guest of ours, uh, Lounsey, John Lounsbury of uh, Jail Sticks. First time, long time. Three-part question. One memory that will never fade, one memory you regret, and one thing you would do all over again. Go ahead, UB. One memory that will never fade. One memory. Is this that- just hockey-wise? Probably just a hockey. Yeah, let's stick to hockey. Yeah. Okay, get real dicey. I was born. Um, <laughs> So the one memory that'll never fade is getting a penalty at the end of a championship tournament game by my future brother-in-law, your dad, (laughs) coming out of the box in overtime and scoring the winning goal against a team that we hated. Oh, there you go. Love that. Second one? About uh, memory you regret. Memory you regret. I regret being, I regret, it's, it's more of a feeling, I think, but I regret being happy that I made my college team because that was the first team that I had ever been on where when I made the team, I was happy. Every other team that I ever played on, when I made that team, it motivated me to work harder and get better. Interesting. Third one? One thing you would do all over again. I'm not sure I understand it. What's that mean? Do all over uh, again. L- Lounsey, that one doesn't make sense. Let's just scrap the third one. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I can't, like, I read that partly as question one, and I read that partly as question two. So I don't really know. <laughs> I'm good with that. Eat it, Lounsey. Uh, so what about you, Bex? Was he a goalie, by the way? He was not. Oh, okay. Uh, one memory that will never fade. Uh, I'd say my first professional game. My first pro game, signed with Boston, went to Providence, played like a week later, um, and I scored a goal, had assist, and I was the first star. And I'll just never forget that as long as I live. It was one of the coolest moments of my whole life. Um, One memory I regret, uh, probably the biggest regret I have is not signing after my sophomore year of college and deciding to come back for my junior year. I think uh, that that – would have been a lot, things would have been a lot different. I obviously would have never got that concussion in the summer I got, but that's just changing the past. But like I would have signed after my sophomore year when I was like, I had all the confidence and confidence in the world, all the swagger. I decided to come back one more year. I didn't have as good a year still signed, but uh, I was, it wasn't the same. Yeah. 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 Stay you. Stay in school, kids. <laughs> <laughs> hey, the NHL team's asking you to sign, and now you can still get your school for free if you're on Scully. So it makes sense to leave even more. Can you really? Yeah. 
Wow. Yeah, a couple of my guys have that. Nice. Yeah. Uh, for me, one memory that will never fade. I have to say my freshman year at Cornell, we're playing against Clarkson to get to the ECAC Final Four, and we're playing at home, and we're in overtime in game two. And if we won that, we went to uh, the Final Four, and I scored the overtime winner. And I legit like have like I can vividly like have the memory of it, you know. You know how that goes. Yeah. And uh so I scored, blacked out for like a couple seconds for sure. But then it was I mean, Cornell's the fans are like ridiculous. I mean, it's sold out every game and just absolutely crazy and all that kind of stuff. And the fans actually rushed the ice after the goal because it was the last game at at the arena for the year. Oh. And rusty ice and they came and they were celebrating with us and and all that kind of stuff and that's sick and afterwards like the, the crowd was chanting my name and it was um i mean it was it that's were you guys at that game well funny story if i may um really, you may really quick <laughs> we went to the first two games the third game was on a sunday and we had promised our daughter jesse that we would make it to her state cheerleading competition this, this is different no it wasn't game three that I scored. It was game two. Oh, game two. Well, yeah. either way, we weren't there. We were in the limo on the way home, and somebody called us and said, Topher just scored the winning goal uh, to win the series. Way to go, Jesse. That's all I heard <laughs> from that one is it's Jesse's fault. <laughs> and by the way, uh, at the gymnastics tournament, it was awesome. They took second, and I cried. Well, yeah, we knew that. You didn't have to say that. It was like putting a period at the end of a sentence. <laughs> Cry reference number two for Bob. <laughs> um, but that was that was really cool. That was that was fun. And I think any championship you win to, those are individual memories, but any championship you win is is pretty special and that never fades too. Um, one memory I regret. It's hard to say like regret. You know what though? I think I regret the kind of captain I was my senior year at Cornell. Because wow. I do. I really do. And I've, like, I've talked to, like, I'm still obviously buddies with everybody and it wasn't like a bad thing, but we've talked about on the podcast, how as a leader, you have to be yourself. And, um, we had some personalities on that team and, and I went the route of trying to almost be like a hard ass as a leader. Um, and that's, that just didn't work. And so I, if I can go back and do something differently in my hockey career, it would be being more of like authentic and be more myself as a, as a captain uh, with that specific team. I think that's one thing I I look back on and I'm kind of like, man, like could have been better for sure. Wow. And my first program was in Elmira, New York in the East coast hockey league. It wasn't after signing an NHL deal. So (laughs) not on the top of my list, but. Oh, that's. That that's had, awesome. That had been pretty exciting though, eh? Yeah. Yeah. That was cool. It's the only goal I ever sallied where like I didn't do the same exact sally that I always wound up doing. I just remember I watched the video. I just stood in the spot. I, you know, I scored Al Montoya. I told you that before. Yeah. Um, so like a guy who'd been in the NHL for a couple of years before, got the puck in the slot, closed my eyes, didn't even look where I was shooting. I don't even think I saw the net. I just heard the goal light go off and I just stood with my hands in the air and I looked to the sky and I was like, I can 
fucking play pro hockey. Let's go. That was, that's what was going on in my head. <laughs> I'll never forget it. Cause some people were like, you're not ready. You're not ready. Blah, blah, blah. And I was like, no, I'm gonna prove you wrong. So that was like the coolest moment. I'll never forget. <laughs> that's awesome, man. That's so yeah. cool. Um, great question. Great question. Uh, moving on. So I really like this question. It's very interesting. This is from Amy G. And it is, what do you think are some good ways to grow the game in a sustainable manner beyond the try hockey for three days? It's a fantastic question. Let, yeah. uh, the, you, I'll answer what I think Jeff Lavecchio would say. Let the guys in the NHL have a personality. Oh God, obviously hundred <laughs> percent, but I mean, it's so much better now. Yeah. I'll like, let you go on. All well, right. I mean, th- th- totally. I mean, like a hundred percent, like you got to create stars. You got to like basketball does a really good job and I don't even watch sports. I didn't watch ESPN, but this is like what I see. Basketball allows their players to be characters and it not, you don't want them to be fake. You want them to be authentic in themselves. But then, like, people love wanting to watch that person. So they'll go and watch the games because they're invested in the person, too. Then they get invested in the games. If you're only invested in the game, you might not go as much. But when you're invested in, like, the game, the people playing the game, everyone that's going to the games, like, it's all about investment. And if you can get people more invested in those games, it'll trickle down. Then people want to play hockey and so on and so forth. And on the flip side of that, I think the NHL needs to do more outreach stuff. Like, I know sometimes the last thing you want to do when you're a player is go to a public appearance, but if you're in the NHL making millions of dollars, I don't think it, you going to one public appearance where you're trying to help grow the game is a bad thing. I think the, you know that should be required of every NHL player and like go and like try, you know, like don't go and be like, which I don't think many hockey players are that way. Be like, like be yourself, smile, have fun. You know, well, like, it's not just the NHL teams, it's the college teams, it's the junior teams, it's the midget teams. Yeah. Um, I think, I think that's. Uh, and sponsorships yeah. go after corporate sponsorships. I've been telling that to our organization for years. Why are we not sponsored by some massive company? All these other teams have done it and their costs go down and they can provide more for their whole organization. Why isn't every organization going to these massive corporations, turn your hockey organization into a 501c3 or whatever nonprofit and get big donations to help the burden of the price of hockey go down, down to grows more. Sorry. You guys tell me you've been in hockey way longer than me. You'd be. That's a, that's a tough question. Um, You know, USA hockey actually does a lot um, to try and grow the game. And and I don't know if there's anything more that you can do. Um, You know, Jeff, I understand that, you know, get corporate sponsorship, but in the Chicagoland area, um, I don't know, there's 30 hockey associations um, and, and trying to find corporate sponsorship for 30 different, associations but then you know you have well you got baseball teams you got football teams you everybody's you know pulling on that dollar here or there but I think by and large the teams um, that you're talking about that have these corporate sponsorship or the organizations are the AAA teams that are across the nation you got Belt Tire you have uh, Little Caesars you had CompuWare uh, Honey Baked Ham um, now in Chicago you have the Mission um, which is uh, Coyote uh, Logistics, who, you know, helped a, a great deal there. Um, certainly trying to get the cost down in general 
um, for all of hockey would probably make it more affordable. And if you look at, at the sport itself, I would say by and large, we don't get all of the bigger, better athletes to play our sport, um, which would make it cool. I mean, the competition in football um, for, for that athlete, and it really has to be somebody who gravitates to hockey, how, you know, however they do, whether it's, they went to a pro game or they went to a college game or a junior game or their dad played or whatever it is. Um, I, I think that, that that's a really tough question um, because it's, it's such broad uh, based or, or, or su- such a big question. And, and I think that the NHL teams have started to do more in the community at the rink I work at in Vernon Hill, Hills, Illinois, um, we are a rink partner with the Chicago Blackhawks, and each rink is offered this, you know, partnership, and uh, they try and get players who come out. But that's coming out to a rink where people are playing hockey. It's not growing the game organically from the outside to the inside. So it's it's a tough question, and and I think that. That, that a lot of people are doing a lot of really good work trying to make that better. Um, and, I, and I think we just have to continue to, to open our minds and find ways to attract those kids uh, to the rink, however we can. For me, um, we need more women involved in the sport of hockey <laughs> at all levels at all levels. Like I'm talking about players. I'm talking about management. I'm talking about coaches. I'm talking about presidents of organizations. Um, there's a lot more male hockey players out there than there are women hockey players. And to, to really grow the game, I think we need more women in all those positions, every single one. Uh, I think they bring something great to the table. Um, it's, it's a huge opportunity um, we've, we talked to Alyssa Gillardi and we talked to Kendall Coyne, uh, about this in the podcast that we had with them in the past uh, about growing the game. They're very involved, uh, at, at the highest levels of the sport and they're doing a phenomenal job marketing the game from their standpoint. Um, but I, I really think that, um, youth organizations all the way on up to, to the NHL need to do a better job of beats, you know, not being an old boys network Mm. because hockey is notoriously known for being an old boys network. Uh, It's one of the the biggest probably weaknesses of our sport is that it is an old boys network from, from the bottom up, you know, you see it at the NHL level, you see it in youth organizations all around the country in Canada and and everywhere else. So um, finding a way to, to be able to get more women involved, players, coaches, management, um, presidents, I mean, whatever it may be, uh, more women, more women would be good for the game. So any women out there, any hockey moms listening, let's go, let's get her done here. <laughs> That'd be fun to hold like a huge, like hockey moms camp, like teach moms to play. Yeah. That'd be pretty fun. Actually. Like a massive one. That'd be hilarious. Be a hit. That would be a good time. <laughs> All right. What do you got? All right. Let me. Let me open up the old telephono here. Do the old uh, face creepy thing where it looks at you so it opens your phone. How creepy is that, by the way? Like your phone is always watching to see if your face goes in front of it. What? Did we have we said on the podcast that we were having trouble with Uncle Tim on his at the beginning because we couldn't see him? 
Oh God, that was so funny. <laughs> couldn't see Uncle Tim. And we were like, what's going on? What's the problem? He's like, my camera's on. I don't know why you can't see me all this kind of stuff. He put tape across his computer where the, the camera is because he thinks people are spying on him. Maybe people are spying on him. I don't know. But it was just like. We Unreal. Were- it was great. <laughs> oh, maybe it's a tape across the camera. All right. Um, this one. This one said, uh, hey, guys, my kids and I love the podcast. Oh, sweet. Tire pump. Thank you. Here's my question. How do you evaluate a AAA or AA coach at the peewee bantam midget level? What are the different attributes you would look at to assess your kid playing for one coach or another? Uh, that's from Ray Tenenbaum, a.k.a. T-Bomb. <laughs> T-Bomb. I like it. What about yeah. what do you think? Oh, um, I am 100% who is the person coaching? What kind of a person is he? Um, Or she. Or she. Or she. What kind of a person is going to be coaching my kid? And and then, you know, you look at choices that you have and whittle it down from there. I I truly believe that that is the most important thing. And when we were going through it and our twins and Topher were were there, um, we always looked at who the coach was first. And that was the most important thing. And when you get to the higher levels, uh, you, you have more, I think you have more choices because you have more guys who uh, have played at a higher level, who are higher level coaches, maybe more experienced as far as number of years and who they've coached. And I think you have to do a little bit of homework and talk to people who have played for that coach. Um, and, and again, that's really more so at the higher levels. You know, if you're looking at a peewee, you know, double A coach that's from, you know, the, the general area you're in. Um, I think you do a little bit of investigation, make sure it's a good person who's going to teach your kids some life skills. And, and that's what's most important. If he knows a lot about hockey and it's close to your home and all of that, it's just a bigger plus. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I agree. I agree on all that. Colorado talks about it's silly season right now Mm -hmm. and it's freaking December and people are already jockeying to figure out where to play next year. And I've already gotten phone calls from, from people um, asking for advice and, and uh, what team to play. And I say the same thing. Who's the coach? (laughs) Who's the coach? Sorry, Jeff, I cut you off there. No, I totally agree. Like all those things, are they about development over winning, even though, again, because I feel like I always have to say this because then people are like, Oh, you don't want to teach them. Like winning is a good thing. No, I hate losing more than anything in the world. And I love winning even more than I hate losing. So I don't want to lose at anything I ever do, but I would not sacrifice development to win games in the amateur level ever as a coach. That's just me. Um, But uh, you know, I just think that, a person that has that kind of um, ideal behind how they want to run the team. And then a person who also is of strong moral and ethical fiber, I would say also. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that would be big. Yeah. I think it's really important too, like evaluating even during the season um, about what's going on. And I think like if you ask your kid or you can tell with your kid, if they're enjoying, like if they want to go to the ring for practice, I think the coach is doing a good job. They might not even know anything about hockey, but if your coach is, if the kid wants to go and he's excited to go for whatever reason, then I think your coach is doing something right, at least. 100%. You know, and, uh, and that's even true. I mean, that's true of pro hockey. 
Yeah. In, in, in junior hockey and college hockey, it's, it's a grind. It's an absolute youth hockey is a grind. It's a long season, no matter what level you play at, yep. when it gets to the dog days of January and February, even if you're practicing twice a week or whatever, and you're playing at lower levels. Um, it's, uh, I, I think that if, if you're excited to go to the rink, then your coach is, uh, your coach is doing something right. I was talking to, uh, actually an NHL hall of famer, Al McKinnis a few weeks ago, because I, I coached his son. Preface this, like we wouldn't know who he is. <laughs> well, I mean, dude, I mean, if there's any kids listening, they don't know who he is. That's true. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I, I, was best friends with Paul Stasny. I had no idea how good Peter was till I was like 16 years old and could like look him up. You know what I mean? Kid, you're ignorant. Anyways, Hall of Famer defenseman. Encyclopedia. <laughs> yeah. Hall of Famer defenseman, Al McKinnis. So we're, we're standing there talking about how much of a grind youth hockey is. And I was like, yeah, you know, I was telling guys the other day that I would love to see the club go down in games. And I asked him before I before to see what his answer was going to be. I was like, how many games would you want these kids to play? And he said 40. And I was like, that's like the exact number that I think my triple a team should be playing per year. I think we're playing like 65 or something or 70 this year. Like it's insane. And then those kids, a lot of them also play high school too, which is just even more insane. So it's just like so much hockey and there's so many overuse injuries and guys not coming out ready to play juniors because they're not strong enough because all they do is play games. So I think that was a big one too. You know what else can be good about not playing as much games is then you can actually take the money that you're spending to go on all these stupid trips that you don't need to go on and actually pay competent people to be coaches. Oh, hundred percent. Hundred percent. A lot of the gripe that I hear from being in the ranks in the youth hockey organizations is dad coaches and how dad coaches are ruining organizations because all they want to do is what's right for their kid, which isn't necessarily best for the whole organization as, as, as a collective. And so, and this is probably more for the triple a level, um, not necessarily for like double a and a and, and things like that, maybe even the lower levels and stuff. Um, but if you can take, you know, two trips out of your, out of your budget, and take that money or take half that money and give it to an up and coming kid or uh, an established, you know, person that lives in the area that probably has kids and has so many other things going on that they can't make it a priority, but now they can maybe put some more food on the table or be a little bit more financially stable. Um, I think you can, if you, again, you 60 games to 40, that's, probably three trips that you're not taking. So imagine what you can do with the money with that three trips <laughs> as opposed to and doing something that's actually better for your kids' development than wearing them out and grinding them down. I agree. And you know what else I got to talk about? Cause I see this all the time. We got 16, 17, 18 year old kids playing two games in a day at some of these showcases. I think that's an absolute joke. Once you hit 16 to play two games a day, it's, it's too much. Like that's a lot of these kids are getting hurt because they're playing four games in two days or four games in two and a half days, five games, to three days. Like it's insane. It's too much at that age when these kids are all, they're not like 16 year olds when you and I played the 16 year olds on my team are jacked and it's my fault because I made them that way. But that's the world we live in now. All these kids have personal trainers and strength coaches. It's a lot on your body when you're like playing at that fast of a game. And I think it's ridiculous that they do that. I'm sh- I'd rather go to a, 
uh, one week, a whole week and play like four games in four days, go out there for five days or something, then play four and two and make that one trip and then not go on a trip for three weeks or something, you know? I think there's pluses and minuses to that. I think, especially if you're in a tournament, I mean, there's only so much ice time and there's only so yeah. many things you can do. And also if you're going for that many days, that's more school being missed. But in the long run, I'm saying it's not. If you miss two days of school for one trip, but then instead of doing those trips where you miss one day of school oh, so for every weekend. But on the trips that you take. Yeah, stay for longer, you know, play good comps. Because how many scouts do I go up to before games or between games and talk to them? And they're like, that's your second game of the day. Yeah, they're going to be, I'm probably not going to watch it. They're going to be tired. Or we'll see what we get out of him, but we know he's tired. Like, it's just like, I don't know. Ah, Jeffrey, I'm going to. Do you like it for the character? Yeah, I know. Show who's got character, right? I get it. Okay, but you're dismissing that. But if I know a kid's tired, but I see them working really hard, like right. huge plus. So maybe I'm going to call that kid now rather than not watch him play. Yeah, I mean, I do get that, but I think you're just opening up. I'd rather just see him one game a day at 16 and above. I just would. But I'm not a scout. I didn't coach. The well, level not, did, I, mean, so. I, I don't know if I agree with that. Like, I think two games in a day is okay. As long as we, we, if they're not like three hours apart from each other, like if you're doing one at like 9 a.m. and the other one at like 6 p.m. Yeah, dude, we had we had one that was exactly four hours apart from the time the game ended, like the second it ended until the second the puck dropped exactly four hours yeah, for 16 year olds. Like, you know, I mean, you, by the time you get undressed, shower, I mean, if you're doing any kind of cool down or stretch, which hopefully you are, and then eat like you're looking at, you got an hour and a half before the game starts. Yeah. Ridiculous. Yeah, no, I agree. I think you need to space them out. I think, I think the kids can handle it. I think they can. Um, you're the, you're the, the physio guy. So um, I'm just, I'm just a, I'm a hockey player, but I'm playing golf today. <laughs> <laughs> that was it very nice. <laughs> Happy Gilmore. What's up? Um, okay. What do you think? One more question each. Yeah. Does that work? Yeah. Yeah, okay, go ahead. One more question each. Uh, so I have a question. Uh, this is from Rochester Edge. It's a two-part question, but I'm just going to do the first one just based on time. And uh, the question is, uh, what is some advice on helping our female athletes develop a scoring mentality? Um, you've coached women before. I have. Is there a difference between men and women on developing a scoring mentality? Boy, that's a tough question. I, I don't necessarily think there is a difference. I think there's a, there's a difference in how you coach. Um, I'm going to say girls. I've never coached older yeah. girls. So I, I know that they, for me, they listen better. Um, you know, they're going to, they're going to try and please you as, as much as they can. Um, encouragement, 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 I think is, is the way to go. Um, I, I think that's the way to go with, boys too, but I think it's a little bit different, um, with girls. If you're just in their face yelling and screaming, um, they kind of shut down and, and then they don't necessarily respect you. Um, but, but as far as teaching them a scoring mentality, you know, a scoring mentality is, is somebody who comes off the bus shooting, right? I mean, there, and there's players who have it, um, players who don't, the players who don't have it, it's a little bit harder to, to kind of work with them and, and get them to understand. 
I, I think that it, the drills that you have to do for either one are just, you know, simple drills where, you know, you're trying to get pucks to the net and you're trying to crash the net and you're trying to make sure that you're tough in front of the net as far as competing for pucks, um, for rebounds and things like that. Um, I, I don't, I, I don't, it, it's a tough question because that, that mentality part of it is really hard because everybody is so different boy or girl. Yeah. I think mentality, it's so hard to develop a mentality. Like it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of consistency to develop a mentality. I can speak from experience. Like in my, uh, my career at Cornell, um, I, I, I was past first all the way. I mean, every, I, if every single coach I think I ever had told me that I needed to shoot more, including my father to, to my right <laughs> over here. Um, but I remember sitting down with the Cornell coaches after my junior year and they're like, we need you to score. Like we need you to score more goals enough of this. Like you need to score more. And so I had to develop a mentality. So what did that mean? That meant in practice on two on ones, I shot every time, every time I had a two on one, whereas in my entire life I would look to pass and always pass now every single time it was a shot so it was getting into that scoring mentality it was every time stopping at the net so like developing habits and practice every single day you you have to do that to develop a mentality because you can't just turn it on and, and turn it off and it have, I have I scored double the amount of goals that I scored uh in a season in my career my senior year um, and it was because it was like, I put a lot of thought and I put a lot of effort into trying to score more. Um, and you probably doubled that amount of goals in, uh, in your best year. What was your best year? How many goals at West college? Yeah. 19 and 36. Oh, so not quite double. I had 10, 10 was 10 was my most at Cornell. Um, I actually, I, I do have one record at Cornell. I have the fewest goals scored for any player that scored hundred points. That's actually so the most assists also known as <laughs> not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but, yeah. that's uh, unreal. like I had, I want to say I had maybe 15 goals or 16 goals in my first three years. And then I had 10 in my last year. And, and it was, it was seriously, it was like all just the mentality that I had coming into practice every day. Well, I love that you said, how do you, a mentality is hard thing to find basically like how do you get a mentality and it's a, literally I was gonna say a hundred percent habits and I tell the kids I coach all the time who are like I want to score more goals and I'm like yes there is an innate ability that some have over others for scoring yeah it's a gift hundred percent but you can through your habits become a much better goal scorer than you are naturally by going to the net thinking shoot first over pass you're going to score more goals the more you shoot like that's literally math grandpa i remember when i was going into my second year of juniors because i only scored one goal my first year in the ushl and he's like look at any league anywhere in the world look who has the most goals and then also look who has the most shots it's almost always the same guy or the top five in goals is almost always the top five guys shooting most of the time and i started looking at it everywhere i went and i was like holy shit grandpa is right like you know your stuff, Gramps, what's up? It's so true. So I literally just got this mindset of I'm going to shoot. I want, I wanted like five to seven shots, depending on what league I was in every single game. It was my goal. I will shoot five to seven shots. And I wanted to have a shot on my first shift. Just, I didn't even care if it went in or not. I just wanted to get it off so that I got out of the way. And I was like, okay. And then stopping every time you're at the net and playing around the net more, the puck has to go to the net to be a goal. 
So if you're around the net, it's going to go off you sometimes. And there's going to be a rebound and you're going to be right there because that's where it has to go to go in. So play around the net more. And those are the habits that turn into a mentality of thinking to score more. Yeah. I think. And, and I think what you're talking about around the net, like as a coach, if you can do small area games right around the net where it's just like really confined areas, because a lot of goals are scored that way, tips, deflections, rebounds, you know, off a skate, whatever it may be. And if you can provide opportunities for kids to develop skills in those areas, then you're going to find that your team is going to score a lot more. So I think that's something that the coaches can do. Mm -hmm. And also, I mean, you said on the podcast too, I think anytime you can create a competition, a scoring competition in practice, that's uh, I think that's massive because yes. scoring competitions are fun and that gets kids to want to score even more and which will develop that mentality habits, what you're talking about. 100%. I absolutely love that. Agree to that. I see that on my own team. I did it my whole career. Like we've already talked about. The other thing I want to say is with drills, coaches now are so like, time efficiency, efficiency, efficiency. We got to get through a hundred reps of every drill. But if you do that, you can't let the kids sometimes play out that quick rebound because you're more concerned about getting 10 more reps per every drill. I'd rather have a better rep where the kid has to shoot it in stride. If the puck is there, he stops on the puck and he tries to bury it. Give him at least one rebound. It's one or two more seconds per shooting drill where now the kid, you're forcing them to stop instead of saying stop at the net every time. But because you're blowing the whistle every two seconds, if they stop at the net, the kid's in the way. So calm down and think about the development instead of just, I got to be efficient. I got to make it look like I'm going hundred miles an hour. It's what other people are thinking what they're looking at my practice. You yeah, know what I mean? I, yeah. I think Keith Elaine from Yale is really big on that. Like he allows a lot of drills to go and especially like the last rep of a drill, it doesn't end until a goal is scored. Love that. Um, and uh, he coached the national championship team. They've always had teams that have scored a lot of goals. Um, he coached in the Olympics last year. Like he's one of the more respected guys in college hockey. And uh, just from talking to, to him and, and his assistant coaches, that's something that they do a lot. They, they let their guys play out pretty much every rep. And it causes the players to compete. It also causes the goalies to compete even more. It's a little bit easier in college because you have three or four goalies. So goalies get tired pretty quick. So it's like, okay, you, you can go take some reps now. Um, but yeah, let it, I, I totally agree, man. I think letting, letting drills play out a little bit more rather than being efficient like you're talking about and blowing whistles, I think that's, that's, that can be really good. Because it's really hard to stop at the net when you're younger. Like think about when you're on a breakaway when you're a kid. I flew by the net every single time. 99% of the time is because the puck was in the back of the net. But <laughs> those other couple of times where I didn't go in, I never stopped. I never stopped. But like, as I got older, I stopped no matter what. I don't even care what it is. I'm going to the net and stopping because it was just like every time I'm near the net. Yeah. And, and you just score when you're around the net. So just mentality, be around the net and, and let your drills play out a little bit. Like it. I like it. All right, man. Last question. Is it Jeff? Right. Your question. What do we got? All right. I got a good one here. It's, it's a higher level question. Um, I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you and Topher talk a lot about training and mental awareness, but not sure if you've talked about how to find a good and competent agent slash agency. We'll add advisor to that as well. That will promote a hockey player properly with the highs and lows from juniors to the draft and after the draft. Or if your current agent agency isn't doing the job, um, how do you find another one? Uh, okay. Here's, here's some 
right through the front door advice, I would say. Um, it's not your agent's job to promote your kid. Your kid's ability and work ethic and character is what gets them to the next level. <laughs> I think that's I think that's a, a part of it for sure. Yeah. Um, I think maybe when you get to and you're talking about a very small segment of the hockey population. Yeah. 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 I think so. And the other thing too, when you're looking at an agent, I, I would never go with an agent that was just about telling you how good you are and what kind of opportunities lay in front of you. I would rather have an agent that's a hundred percent honest with you. Like, Hey, there's no teams interested in you right now, but like, we got to be better. Okay. These are the things that you need to work on. I talked to your coach and this is what he thinks or she thinks that you need to work on. Um, if you have somebody that's just blowing smoke up your butt all the time and just telling you how good you are, that's like, that's red flag for an agency advisor, whatever it may be. I think the best agents in the business, and we work with them all the time as, as college hockey coaches, like they, they have the kid's interest at heart first and not their own. And a very big red flag that the agent has their own agenda first is when they don't give you any critical feedback or criticism and they're not honest with you. So I think if there's people out there listening to this that are evaluating their own advisor or are looking for an advisor or whatever it may be, like, I think you need to have somebody that's just straight up honest with you and somebody that will tell you it's not my job to promote you. Your promote your promoting is based on your play. <laughs> yeah. And I also think it's like, uh, the, the question about the coach, you got to do homework. You got to talk to people who uh, have been with this person uh, and not just one person. You got to find a bunch of people and talk to them and talk to other uh, people that are in the industry to find out who they would recommend. Um, because yeah, that's when you're, when you're at that level, uh, you really want somebody who's in your corner and, and is, and is giving you the advice to make you better. Um, not just blowing smoke. Yeah. And the other thing too, I mean, Jeff, you can talk about this cause you, I mean, I never really had an agent, um, but you have, you had a couple, I think. And I think something that's really important is like the showing that you care. Like if they call you back right away when you call them or they text you back right away, or you ask them to do something and they actually do it, that means that they care because there's a lot of agents out there that throw nets out far and wide and get all these people and then they just cater to the kids that are going to amount to something because th those are the ones that are going to make them money. So I think recognizing that they're actually doing work for you and responding to you immediately, not necessarily immediately, but in a time that's, that's right. I think that's important too. And then you, you went through it. So I think you'd be good to answer this question too. Yeah. I mean, I agree with everything you both said. I mean, doing your research is definitely massively important um as much as you can and the hockey world's so cool that we all like to help each other out as much as we can um so like look, you can look up on their website who that they they are an advisor or an agent for if it's in the professional ranks and sometimes the college ranks too and, and you, somebody's going to know somebody at those higher levels we all know that there's going to be one or two degrees separation don't be afraid to reach out and be like you know what have you heard what do you think blah blah like because you got to find out um some teams don't like dealing with some agents because of their personalities and I, you know i didn't know that was a thing um when i got my first agent so you got to know about those things too 
Um, if the team you're with doesn't like that guy or the team that you think you're going to sign with or whatever, like you, there's just a lot more that goes into it, the relationships and such. So you really got to do your homework as far as the character. And then obviously, yeah, feedback, especially from an advisor. If you got, if you're one of these people that's paying $3,000 for the advisor thing, um, you know, I absolutely hate that. I think it's disgusting. Um, I love that people want to help with $3,000. Like, come on, that's a joke. Um, but make sure it's somebody who's going to give you feedback. So it's not, you're paying them $3,000 to call their friend who is some way of shape or form affiliated with a junior team. So they get you a tryout. Like that's not worth $3,000 back from the $3,000 that you're paying. Too. That's all you're getting back. And you're not getting feedback about your play. They're not watching your games. Literally they're calling their buddy and saying, Hey, I'll give you a hundred bucks of this 3000. Uh, if you take so-and-so at the tryout. So like, know what you're dealing with those people. Cause I hate that stuff. Yeah. And I would actually be weary the, the website thing that you said, like I would be weary of websites because it's very good to be a good marketer or it's very easy to be a good marketer and not have any substance to, to what you do. And there's a lot of people getting into the advisor agent business right now or, or that are trying because they're recognizing that, you know, the, the amount of chaos and uncertainty that is youth hockey today, you know, that there's a, there's a need. I don't want to say there's a need for it, but people think there's a need for it. And so don't base your opinion on a shiny website that is good marketing. Right. And there are some good ones out there. Like I know I have some clients that have some good guys, like a hundred percent. And some guys that are, he has a website. Yeah. Yeah. And some guys are like, they want to help their clients. They want to get them to talk to a sports psychologist. They want to get them the best trainer in the area. They want like, they're truly there to help. And I really appreciate those guys. And those are the guys who, are worth some money. I do believe they are worth some money, yeah. you know, $3,000. So that's a, that's a lot of money to get your kid to try out. <laughs> yeah. But don't like, don't base your decision based upon, uh, you know, and some, some advisors even out there, like they'll say they had a part in a kid getting to a school or that kid's name is on the website and that kid might've went to a camp of theirs once. Right. Yeah. So, that's why I said, look who's on the website and then call them like, <laughs> or find a way, you know, through somebody knows somebody to call, have them call them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Talk to people who've had that. Ask, ask the advisor, say, who, who have you represented and can I have their phone number? Yeah. Boom. Roasted. You know, and they'll probably give you the phone number of uh, somebody that actually likes them. If they did something. <laughs> it might be a double-edged sword, but um, you know, I would, yeah, just do as much research as you can. And uh, you know, but at the end of the day, again, like, you got to be good at hockey to advance to the next level. An advisor is not going to do that for you. It's based upon the, the kind of hockey player you are, the kind of character you have. Um, if you want to play college hockey, the kind of grades that you have. And so um, I wouldn't focus so much on an advisor. I'd focus more on becoming a better hockey player. So like it. All right, man. Well, that's, I think that's a good one for today. What do you think? Yeah, we answered a lot of stuff. I had one I actually did want to ask real fast, just a quick one. Let's keep the answer quick um, because it's one I get a lot or people who aren't in hockey, like ask it. Um, Guy who listens to our podcast all the time, he, I don't know if he would want his name associated with the question since he DM'd me. Um, He said, what are your thoughts on tier three juniors and is it worth it? (laughs) I think that depends on the kid. Depends on the family. 
Um, I would never, like, honestly, I would never tell a kid if their dream was to play college hockey and if there's opportunity to, to help them get there and they had the money to be able to do it and they're okay with taking a couple of years off of school, I would never tell a kid not to do it. I would tell them to, 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 again, do your research and make sure you're going to a team that advances people and that has a good coach and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, I, I think, I, like, people sometimes rat on junior hockey for being bad um and kids should be going to school and we've talked about it on the podcast you're going to live till hopefully you're 80 90 years old what's another year or two if that's just if that's really your dream is to play college then what's wrong with that um you're going to learn a lot playing junior hockey um our experience is playing junior hockey i always say like junior hockey made a man out of me like i really had to learn a lot of life stuff good bad and indifferent um but there are a lot of bad shady tier three junior teams out there too um, that give junior hockey a bad name because like they're in it for the money. They're in it for the money. Exactly. They're not in it for the kids. So if you find a good one that, that cares and does advance people and, and all that kind of stuff, I don't think there's anything wrong with playing junior hockey until you're 20. If that's what you want to do. What you do you mean? Yeah, I, I'd, I'd agree with that. I think that, you know, if you're a family that's, um, struggling and you're going to struggle to pay for college tuition, uh, that, you know, paying 10, 15, 20 grand, uh, to play in a, a lower level, uh, uh, junior league, uh, might not be the right thing. Um, but if you've got, you know, if you can afford it and the kid wants to do it and try it, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Um, if you're, if you're at that level, you know, where are you really going to be going to college at? Are you going to be at a D1 school? Probably not. Um, are you going to be at uh, a D3 school? Yeah, there's a good chance. Or are you going to play club hockey? Um, you know, those are all the things that you have to kind of look at and evaluate. And if you're a 19-year-old a and can afford it and want to go do that and, and maybe have a chance to to move a level up, you know, great. But if, if you're just going because you think you have to, cause you're going to get that D one scholarship. Um, I, I think you really got to think long and hard about it. Yeah, for sure. And I think the cost thing is something that's good to bring up because if like, if you're a parent and you're going to allow your kid to do it, I would have your kid pay for some of it. If this is really your dream and this is what you want to do and it's that expensive, like if that you really got to work for this and pay for, pay for some of it, maybe not all of it, maybe just some of it, but get a job like junior hockey. You're at the rink for three hours a day. That's a lot of other time. You and I have had junior experiences where the coaches have said you either have to go to school or you got to get a job if you're, if you're uh, out of high school. So have you like, have your kid get a job and help you pay for it because it is tier three hockey. I think it's pretty expensive. I think it's some places like 10 grand to do it. I was going to ask that question. Do we really know what that cost is? I mean, I'm sure it's different for different organizations, but um, I, I think it, I, I mean, I've heard it's 10 grand in places. So for me, like it's comes down to like life, like step back from hockey, like, your life you only get one chance at this thing like so if you want to play hockey for another year play hockey for another year school will always be there once you turn 21 you age out you can never play juniors again you're done and if you're done done you're never going to play like a real 
you know, quote unquote hockey game again. So as long as the safe environment and the team takes care of you and you have the financial ability to do it, I love what Tove said. Like if you're an older guy going there and it's your first year and you're 19, like, you know, parents maybe make them get a, you know, a part-time job two or three days a week to pay for some of their, their stuff. But like you only live once, man, like go play. You're never going to have that experience again, ever. Ever, ever. And we'll teach you so much. Hopefully again, as long as you choose the right coach, right organization, all those things that will make them a better person. And then in the long run, I believe all the lessons you learn through hockey are going to make you a better, more efficient uh, citizen of society and better person anyways. So like it's going to teach you lessons about responsibility and work ethic and buzzword after buzzword. You know what I'm saying? You got it. You got a dog. Responsibility. <laughs> you got to get off your <laughs> yeah, I, have to edit. I already have to edit out one of your f-bombs on here so i said f-bomb tonight yeah you did oh wow when you were talk- I think it was when you were talking about uh uh your first pro game oh my that's okay it's all good i wish i had that opportunity to throw an f-bomb out there for playing in the <laughs> after you're easily good enough to. <laughs> uh, well, this was awesome. I think I love doing these mailbag episodes. And, and again, we like doing these because we appreciate all your feedback. Everything that the listeners out here, I uh, can't believe it's been over a year that we've been doing this now. We get thousands of, of downloads from every episode um, and even more, you know, social media posts and, and people sharing our stuff. And, and that's so cool. And we see that stuff. It just makes us feel very, very good because, we always feel like the reason why we started this podcast was to help out the hockey world and provide some information for people that, you know, just want to be a little bit more educated and inspired about the game of hockey at all levels, not just the highest levels, but the, the younger generation and, and people coaching and parenting the younger generation as well. So um, really, really appreciate everybody for all the support that you've given us. Very cool to have Bobby Scott, my dad, on for this one as well. And I had fun. We have we have had we have had um, recommendations for a dad's episode, and that is in the works. We've done it twice. Strike two. For whatever reason, uh, for whatever reason, the audio—it's literally the only two times the audio has been bad. Probably because your dad's eyes are peeing on the keyboard and messed <laughs> up all his crying he's doing talking about you. Yeah, we, we have even a stool a little bit far away from our computer. <laughs> tries today. So, but that's actually, I think it was only it one. It was only one. It was only one. So you're keeping better. his game tight. Yeah, he's getting better. Uh, but thank you, thank you, thank you to everybody. Happy 2020, new decade. And here's the thing here's the thing that I want to say as we go into the new decade here. I know everybody out there is going to have these New Year's resolutions and they want to you know, get fit or they want to do X, Y, and Z for the next year. I want. Everybody out there, because I've been doing a lot of reading on this kind of thing, I want to know what you're doing on January 23rd, not on January 1st or 2nd or 3rd, because what you do on January 1st or 2nd or 3rd, it doesn't really mean anything. But if you're still doing it on January 23rd, that is amazing. And I don't know if you, do you guys have New Year's resolutions for this year? Do you guys do that at all? No. No, nah, I just wake up and piss excellence. <laughs> That's from... It's from Talladega Nights. Come I on. Know, I know. Right. Right. Just making sure. <laughs> <laughs> I actually have one this year and I wanted to share it because I think, I hope everybody else out there maybe can do this too. But my thing that I want to do in 2020 is be relentlessly authentic. Just be myself, man. Cool. You know, just like, 
like it. I worry a lot about what other people think. I worry about I'm kind of a perfectionist and doing things the right way and all the time and all that kind of stuff. But thank God for your mother. <laughs> um, but I think just in, in 2020, so hopefully on January 23rd, as we do our podcast that week or whatever, I'm a little bit more goofy. I'm a little bit more smiley and all that kind of stuff and not trying to be so perfect at everything and trying to be somebody for other people and all that kind of crap. So that's my new year's resolution. Hold me accountable to that listeners for when we hit January 23rd and then freaking February 23rd and March 23rd too. Um, but like I said before, we thank you so much for all your support and hopefully have a good 2020.